So once every month we have communion and we just don't eat communion, we teach the gospel so that you really understand what it is that we have been invited to participate in. The Lord has given us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism. Those are the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ left for the church to observe. Baptism is done once when one comes to faith in Christ by the ordinance of communion of the Lord's Supper is to be remembered. And as we hear from the words of the Lord, he said, as often as you do this, remember me. So we remember Christ for who he is and what work he has done and is doing. Because Christ is still working. He finished the work of salvation from this end. But he is working. He ever intercedes. He ever intercedes for us before the throne of God. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer and prepare or get prepared to hear what the Lord has given me to share this morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning by the merits of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures, who died for the remission of our sins and was justified as the Son of God by the resurrection. And in the resurrection also justified us as we will learn from the book of Romans. Lord, we praise you that you have given us this time to learn about the most important things pertaining to our life and righteousness and judgment. For this has not been given to all. There are billions of people across the world who do not know the way of peace with you. They don't know how to approach you in peace. And yet you were pleased to reveal Christ to us and to show us the narrow way, the narrow way to life. For broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go that way. So we thank you, Lord, that by your grace, by your electing grace, you determined that some of us would be saved as vessels of mercy, as vessels of honor that will be displayed to all the denizens of heaven. And you would point to them and say, these are my people. Look at what I did to serve these wretched people and to bring them to myself. And Lord, we thank you that you were pleased to serve as the wretched and to present us without blame before you in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Romans 4, 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We are talking about Christ. I hope we always talk about Christ and what he accomplished. So the title of our sermon is What Did Jesus Accomplish on the Cross? Part 2. Because we have part 1. It is important for us to know what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. If the gospel is good news, we have to understand what is good about the news. And we know that there's a twofold nature to the gospel. The gospel is good news first and foremost because of the person of Jesus Christ. But what is the good news about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is good news because he is the son of God who revealed God to us by taking up human flesh, by the incarnation, by the clothing of himself with humanity, with human nature, for the purpose of accomplishing the work that God the Father sent him to do the work of redemption, the work of atonement. And that leads us to the second aspect of the gospel. It is the work of Christ. Now that we have identified this person and who they are, now we go to what it is that they were assigned to do. Because the work of Jesus only has value because of who he is. The work of Christ is good news because of the person and nature of Jesus Christ as both God and man. It's very, very, very unique to Christianity to believe that Christ is God and man. It's only Christianity that teaches that. And the hope of Christianity is centered around that confession of the person of Jesus. If you say everything that Jesus did and you remove the person and nature of Jesus as God and man, then you have no Christianity and you have no gospel. So Jesus Christ is God who took up human nature for the purpose of dying. Christ took up human nature for the purpose of dying. He took up human nature that he may be the Passover lamb. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When you are reading the book of John right in chapter 1. As soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus. He points his disciples and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the
the sin of the world. And it was in Jesus' mind and understanding that he came to die. He came to be glorified. So Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that take away the sin of the world. That is the elect people from every tribe, tongue, and nation of this world. Now to the importance of the person of Jesus. The payment of our sin requires two natures to the sacrifice. The payment for our sins requires two natures to the sacrifice. The sacrifice cannot be a bull or a goat because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and gods could never take away sin. And the sacrifice to our sin could not just be a human being because if it's just a human being, there was none who was sinless enough to pay for the sins of God's people. A human being by themselves are not enough to redeem more than one person. And if salvation has to happen, the sacrifice that is given has to be more than a human being. It has to have the nature of God. It has to be God. But we have a problem. The payment of sin requires death. The payment of sin requires death. And so God cannot help you because God does not die. God cannot die. So God can't help you with your sin. But if God is enjoined to humanity by taking up human flesh, then that makes God able to die. So Christ came and tabernacled with us. He took on human flesh to enable him to be that perfect sacrifice that which when raised on the cross was able to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. So for our sin to be paid, it requires a sinless man, a sinless man to die in our place as a representative. But not only that, that sinless man has to have more qualities than just being a sinless man. And the sinless man could not be an angel because an angel cannot give you the righteousness of God. You need the righteousness of God to be saved. But even more, an angel does not die. There's no cemetery anywhere where you have angels that are buried. Even though they sinned, there is no burial ground for dead angels. Angels sinned, but they did not die in a physical sense. They died in a spiritual sense. So there's more to death than just being immobilized and being put in the grave. There is the physical aspect of death and then there is the spiritual aspect of death. So angels have died, but not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. That is those that sinned. So we need someone who is of the same order of nature as God and also of the same order of nature as the ones who sinned. You need one who has the same order of nature as God to bring the righteousness of God. 
but also of the same order of nature of those that sinned. And where were you going to get that sacrifice? You could not bring that kind of sacrifice. You could never conceive of bringing that kind of sacrifice. God alone could conceive of bringing that kind of sacrifice. And this is what Jesus Christ did. He came to be that perfect sacrifice on your behalf. And because he came as your perfect sacrifice, we have to hear what God says about Christ and what he did. Because that's where your hope is. There's no hope in trying to find satisfaction in what you can do for God. Because if you're going to be good, it's only going to last half a day. You're good one day, and then the next day something bad happens, and you realize you're a sinner again. And God is not happy with you. And what's going to happen if you get bad on the day that you die? So this Jesus has to have done something that makes this gospel very, 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 very good news. Okay? Jesus did something special that makes this gospel very, very good news. But for us to understand the work of salvation and what Christ has done, because a lot of people will say, oh, Jesus died for our sins. But they don't have much more understanding as to what really is going on. We have to understand that God is holy and righteous. That is a very important point for people to acknowledge. And this is a doctrine that is not taught. God is holy and righteous. And that is the source of the problem. Because God is holy and righteous, he holds all to an absolute standard of holiness and righteousness, a standard that cannot be negotiated. He requires that if you have to see life, you have to be 100% as righteous as he is. And this is why he says in Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So what is that saying? That is saying, if you fall short of the glory of God, if you fall short of the holy standard of God, you must die. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark of God's standard of righteousness. And as we learn from Romans 3, Apostle Paul says, There's none righteous, no, not one. So that's a blanket statement. That's a summary of all humanity. None righteous. So that puts us all on the same level. It puts everyone on the same level. And if anyone has to be lifted from that, something has to happen. Something has to happen from outside the fallen humanity. God has to bring someone outside this fallen world who is not under the judgment of condemnation. Someone who is able to render to God the righteousness that God requires. So then, we need to understand that there's more to the gospel than just John 3.16. 
God is a just God, which means he does not forgive sin without payment. He does not wink at sin and say, you did your very best and so come in. No, that is not true. If God would do that, then he loses or ceases to be holy and righteous. If he does that, then anyone can go to heaven by bringing whatever they can lay their hands on. Some people would be going to heaven with a bag of peanuts. Others would butter tread their way into heaven. And yet some will sweet talk the security guard at the heaven immigration office. And yet some would be saving a lot of money. And there, there are many who are also saving money as if money can be payment for you to be accepted by God. And if it were so, like around springtime, you'd be seeing a lot of garage sales with people having banners that say, we are having a fundraising effort to raise money, raise money to go to heaven. Or I am pulling a double shift so that I can raise enough money for my ticket to heaven. If that is how it worked, we would be frantically saving money to go to heaven just as we do for retirement. But salvation does not work that way. Salvation requires first and foremost that you recognize that God is holy and righteous and undefiled and separate from sinners. And any who are not holy and righteous cannot approach him. They can't approach him. And you have to recognize that you are not holy, you are not righteous, and that means you are a sinner. And being a sinner means there is no way that you by yourself could initiate a conversation with God as to make peace with him. Because you are a sinner, you are alienated from God and you need to make peace with him because if you have to fight with God, you are the one who loses 100% of the time. So we need to know that we are sinners. We need to know that we were born in Adam. And when Adam sinned, we broke the righteousness of God. We broke the law of God. For according to James 2.10, if you break one of God's commandments, you are guilty of the whole law. The law comes as a unit. You can't pick and choose what you think you are able to do. Like a lot of people do. They go and pick up whatever they think they're able to do from the Old Testament and then impose it on people. What they don't realize is the law comes as a unit. So that's what James was saying, that if you break one piece of the law, you are responsible to do the whole law. Or you are responsible for the consequences of everything that the law says. So in Adam, we were made sinners. That is, we lost the ability 
to fulfill the demands of God's righteousness by ourselves. And we need to understand something about God. We said God is holy and righteous, but God is also a judge as he is a loving father. He can't love you to the exclusion of his holiness, justice, and law. And you can't understand God's love towards us in Christ without understanding that he also is judge. And yet, many evangelicals only look at God as the God of love. People only view God as the God of love and they refuse to see God any other way. But a God who is only love and love alone does not send anyone to hell. If the problem with God was that he only is loving, then there's no reason why God should send anyone to hell. If his son dies a horrible death, it means there's something more to God than just love. And whatever is more to God makes him more willing. He makes him willing to kill his own son. And if he's willing to kill his own son, guess what? He's even more willing to kill you. If judgment and execution of Christ could not be stopped, and Christ, who was the Son of God, he is not going to wink at you for a second. He will kill you. So the issue with God and salvation is for us to understand that he is holy and righteous. And I think man could use the knowledge of angels from Isaiah 6. Because the angels know something about God that sinners don't. When you go and read Isaiah 6, when Isaiah had the vision of the Lord in the temple, he had the seraphim singing. They were not singing love, love, love. But they were singing and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So holiness is very important to God. And God did not stop the angels and corrected them and say, No, you don't get this right. You have to sing love, 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 love. So holiness is very important for us to appreciate as we learn about the work of Christ. So the law of God, the law of God has to be honored because it honors the holiness of God. And if the law of God is not honored, then his justice is not honored and there's no peace with him. The holiness of God has to be honored because everything that is God is holy. Everything that is God is holy. So when we sinned in Adam, we became unholy. We became guilty of his sin and its consequences. Our depravity, our depraved hearts and minds, the darkness of our minds came because of sin. 
And also with that came the judgment of condemnation and death as God had promised to Adam. And as we know from Romans 5, God reckoned all humanity as having sinned in Adam. The sin and condemnation of Adam was imputed to us. It was accounted to us. And this is very fundamental to our understanding of the gospel because the scriptures are clear to say you were condemned in the first Adam. That is the first imputation. Three imputations. First imputation, the sin of Adam to you. And then the second imputation, your sin to Christ. And the third imputation, the righteousness of Christ to you. That is what the scriptures teach. So in Romans 5.12, the apostle says, Therefore, just as through one man, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So what we see here is that through Adam, sin and death entered into humanity. And God reckoned all humanity as having sinned and died in Adam. So you don't have to do anything special for you to be condemned. You are already condemned in Adam. What you need is someone to lift you out of that condemnation. And now that we understand that we are under sin, death, and condemnation, we can talk about Christ. We can talk about Christ and what he accomplished. Because in the understanding of Jesus, he accomplished something when he was on this earth. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he said to John the Baptist. But he also obeyed God in all the precepts of the law of God. And this he did as your substitute. The gospel is good news because Christ entered into your place. He entered into your room as your substitute to do everything that God required of you that you could never do by yourself. But he came and took on that responsibility as your surety. He took on the legal obligation and the consequences of that. On your behalf. So the life of Jesus. Was the life of one who was a substitute. He was a substitute. And it was a life of full obedience. Even obedience to the point of death on the cross. So the apostle would say in our text. Romans 4.25. He who was delivered up because of our offenses. And was raised because of our justification. There are two things there that are in this text. Jesus was delivered up to die on the cross because of our offenses. And that statement is saying that by Jesus being raised on the cross, he was paying for our offenses. Jesus actually paid something when he was on the cross. Our offenses needed Someone to pay for them. 
either Christ was going to be delivered up or you yourself, you were going to be delivered up. But you were not enough to burn on the cross. You were not enough to ground the power of the wrath of God. And that is why hell is for eternity. Because no creature is able to ground the power of God's wrath on them. But Christ as God, he was able to ground the wrath of God in the time that he did it. The three hours that he was on the cross. A sinner would not have been able to do that. It takes one who is God to absorb the wrath of God. So if someone denies that Jesus Christ is God, they are basically denying the gospel. It's not about them being sincere. It's not about them growing up in church and attending church and doing things in the church. Ultimately, to deny that Christ is God is so bad beyond what men can conceive. Because everything that we say about Christ only is true and works because of who he is. But related to the death of Christ on the cross was the significance of the resurrection. Because Apostle Paul says he was delivered up for our offenses, but he was raised because of our justification. So there's something that is important about the resurrection. The resurrection message is very important to the gospel. Jesus was raised up, according to Apostle Paul, because of our justification. So what we see from this statement, from chapter 4, verse 25, we see that we had two problems. There are two problems there that are stated positively. First, we had a problem of offenses that needed payment. And secondly, we needed to be justified. But what does that mean? Given the situation that we inherited from our father Adam, that is of offenses and condemnation, we needed these to be solved before we could approach God in peace. So we see you have offenses that need payment and you also need justification. Our offenses needed payment, but there was also the legal judgment from God's court that we were worthy of death. Thus, our legal status before God also needed to be changed from condemnation to justification. Our legal status needed to be changed. We have to understand this because when you come to faith, that's exactly what is happening. When you come to Jesus, you are changing your legal status before God. From condemnation to justification. From death to life. From darkness to light. And before Christ, before Christ, we were all under the condemnation of death. Basically, you are walking as one who is on death row, awaiting execution to go to hell. And if anything happens to someone who does not have Christ, they're going to hell. As soon as they die, they're going to be sent to hell. 
If you're not in Christ, you are essentially on death row. That's what it means. And it's the truth. If you're not in Christ, you are just walking with a noose in your neck. So when Jesus came, he had to solve two major problems. The payment of your sin and your justification. That is the legal aspect of your position before God. He had to find or make payment for your sins. And that was Jesus' understanding of his mission. In Matthew 20, verse 28, this is what Jesus said. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, a payment, that's ransom money, but he made a ransom payment by his own blood. He made a payment. Jesus was very aware that when he came, he was coming to be the payment of someone's sins. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, this is what Apostle Paul says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, that is God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be seen for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself, that is Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body, on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Acts 20, 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Psalm 49. 7 to 8. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. No man is able to give to God a ransom payment as to redeem someone. But this Jesus came and he says, the Son of Man has to be delivered as a ransom for many. So Jesus' understanding was he was sufficient payment because Jesus knows of Psalm 49. Jesus knows that there's no man who is capable to give God a ransom for anyone. But he comes and says, I am the ransom payment. I am going to be raised up that I may deliver you, that I may make the payment to God and look to whom the payment was supposed to be made. Psalm 49 again says, to give to God a ransom for him. So when Christ 
came and died, he was making a payment to God and not to the devil, like some people say. Jesus did not pay anything to the devil because no one sinned against the devil. We sinned against a holy and righteous God and it is to him alone that payment for our sins was due. So Jesus on the cross gave himself to be punished by God for his people. He bore our sins and the penalty and judgment of them on the cross. The wrath that was poured on Jesus was not in the beating by the Roman soldiers. It was not in the beating by the Roman soldiers. The wrath of God on Jesus was not in people mocking and spitting on him. The wrath of God on Jesus was poured by God on him on the cross. Jesus on the cross did not cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me to the Roman whip or the mockery of the people? No, according to Isaiah, his face was marred from God's judgment. Jesus was not afraid of man. Read the Gospels. Jesus was not afraid of man. Jesus was not afraid of Pilate. He said to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it was given you from above. And Jesus was saying, unless I give you the power, <laughs> you would not have any power over me. Jesus, the Son of God, could not be afraid of his creatures. He is the one who created them all. And the breath of their life was in his hands. Jesus was afraid of God. That he prayed with much agony in the garden of Gethsemane. As he anticipated the hour of his real shame and humiliation. And when he prayed, Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, take away this cup. Take away this undiluted cup of your judgment away from me. He did not pray and say, Father, take away these Jews and Romans away from me. That's not what Jesus prayed. Jesus knew something that men don't. Jesus, as the Son of God, was afraid of God. He was afraid of God's judgment. And men don't know that. Why? If you're talking about the sin of men, that's one of the best examples. That men are not afraid of God. And yet the one who was sinless was afraid of God. Take away this cup from me. And if you know your Bible, the cup, that's God's cup. The cup is God's judgment that is pictured as a, a bitter cup that God presents to someone to drink. It's a bitter cup that is spices. It's mixed with the spices of judgment. From the hands of God. And God is going to make you to drink it right to its drags. 
Here, Revelation 4, verse 9 to 10. Revelation 4, 9 to 10. Then an angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, listen to this, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And this is just happening to created things. Jesus received more than what was described there. Jesus received more and was in much agony and he prayed more earnestly as we are told. And we are told that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was not praying earnestly and his blood was not coming out because he was afraid of the Romans. Not because he was afraid of the Jews. The Romans and the Jews were just instruments in God's hands to lift Jesus onto the cursed tree. Jesus could not have been killed by nails. The one who was in the beginning with God, in whom was the light and life of man. The one who had life in himself could not be killed by three nails. He could not be killed by man. Only God's judgment could kill Jesus. Jesus was not killed by man because sinners have no power over death. The power of death only belongs to the hands of God. Jesus accomplished his own death. And a lot of people have never heard that. But Jesus said it. John 10, 18 and 19. This is what Jesus said. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down, not the Jews, not the Romans. It's not them that are causing me to lay my life down. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Wow. How can you say that? Where do you get that authority to make such a statement? There has to be more to you to be able to make that statement. That I'm going to die and then I'm going to resurrect myself. No one takes it away. That is my life. No one takes it away from me, but I lay down of myself. I have power to lay down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. So Jesus achieved his own death. Jesus achieved his own death because there's no sinner who could kill Jesus. There's no sinner who can kill God. Listen to Isaiah 52, 13 and 14. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many 
were astonished at you, so his visage was mad more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. His form was mad. There's never been a man whose face has been more mad than the face of Jesus on the cross after God had poured his wrath on him so much that he caused darkness to fall that nobody may see his face. And this is coming from Isaiah 53, 4-5. Isaiah 53, 4-5. Isaiah records for us and says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Smitten of God and afflicted. Not smitten of the Jews. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his caging, we are healed. So that's anticipating the work of Christ on the cross. Also telling us what is going to happen to this righteous servant when he gets on the cross. God is going to smite him. God afflicted Christ on the cross. And as I said, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour for almost three hours. Jesus is there on the cross and absorbing, grounding the wrath of God on your behalf. And at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has been forsaken. Jesus has been forsaken not to the Jews and the Gentiles, but to God's judgment. Jesus did not cry, why have you forsaken me, when he was having running battles with the Jews in the temple. Jesus was forsaken, not by the Jews, but by God on the cross. This is the first time that the father despised his own son. But Jesus was not despised because of himself. For there was no sin in him. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and was bruised for our iniquities. He was smitten by God's rod because of you and mine's sins. And this rod was due to you. Okay? This rod of God's judgment was due to you. So once the smiting had been completed, once the smiting had been successfully completed, and God's wrath was satisfied, the apostle says Christ was raised for our justification. But we need to ask some questions. This is just for your growth and maturity in understanding the work of Christ. Because if you don't ask certain questions, it's very difficult sometimes to get understanding of what is being said. So we have to ask some questions and answer them that we may know what happened 
Now that Jesus was forsaken, now that Jesus has been humiliated, died and resurrected, we have to ask the question, did God spend all his wrath that was due you on Christ or not? Did God spend all his judgment on Christ or not? And if he did, was he satisfied with the punishment that he poured on him? Because how we answer that is very important to salvation. It's important to our faith. It's important even to spiritual warfare. Because a lot of people will say, oh, I have my spiritual warfare verses. Christ is your spiritual weapon. Knowing the work of Christ, knowing what Christ accomplished is what will bring stability under all circumstances. Because if Christ did not accomplish the work that God gave him to do, and if God did not fully pour his wrath, if God left one ounce of his wrath still not poured on Christ on your behalf, guess what? You are still under the condemnation in Adam. You still need another sacrifice. But if he did, then there has to be a change in your legal relationship with God. Now, we are talking about the second problem that Jesus solved for you. Jesus solved for you your justification problem. Jesus made you accepted by God. If Christ finished the work that God gave him to do, and God poured his complete wrath on him, then God has to get back into his courtroom and make a judgment as to whether to adjust your status or not, depending on what Christ did. As a sinner, just as all sinners, you have a serious immigration status problem with respect to heaven. Heaven has its own immigration law. You may have your papers and citizenship good for here and now, but it's only for here and now. But with respect to God, you are still an undocumented and illegal immigrant. You need to be documented and be recognized properly in the courts of heaven. When it comes to God, all children of men are illegal immigrants. And because of that, they can't participate in heavenly things and are not welcome to heaven unless there is a change of legal status. We need to know that that is what sin has done to us. Because of sin, we do not have a proper legal status with respect to God as to be called citizens of heaven. Something has to happen. Something has to happen. God has to do something to change our immigration status with respect to heaven. I remember when I was coming to the States some 14 years ago, 
I flew through Philadelphia International Airport. And the lady, the immigration officer, stamped in my passport, visa valid for duration of stay or duration of status. So for me to be treated as a legal person in the USA, I had to come on a visa. I had to come on a legal document that was recognized by the law of the land. And if I was to continue to be in good standing with the law of the land, I had to maintain my status or I risked being arrested and deported. And now we shall weave that into our understanding of the gospel and justification because this is a serious matter. When you have understood justification, you realize that there's so much foolishness that is in the church that is being called the gospel and people are so caught up in doing a lot of crazy things thinking that they are improving their standing before God and improving their acceptance by God. They don't realize how the law of God works. God himself has to make a legal pronouncement of your status. And once God has made a legal pronouncement that you are a citizen of heaven, then there's nothing in the created world that can come and change the status. And the circumstances of your life, whether rich or poor, do not change that status. So whether you get buried with a suit or no suit, in a coffin or no coffin, that does not change your legal status. And this is why the gospel becomes very good news. Because you know, because God has made a pronouncement of who you are in Christ, there is nothing and nobody who can do anything to change that. So Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. But he was raised, resurrected for our justification. Justification is a legal term. Just like condemnation. They both respect the passing of a judicial sentence in the court of law. They are both forensic terms because they respect the pronouncement of the decision of the judge. They are both words that describe one's legal status before the law of God as having satisfied it completely that is justification or not. And that's condemnation. So if the judge says you are guilty, then the law has to put you in jail. You have to suffer the consequences of the outlaw. If the judge comes, even right now, if he didn't commit a crime, but the judge comes and they say, so and so is guilty of this crime, guess what? You are going to jail. We have had a number of people who have been in prison, served 30 years, 40 years, never committed the crime. How did they get into prison? Because the judge said they were guilty. And yet, we have a lot of people who committed crimes and they're walking scot-free. Why? Because the judge said they were innocent. They didn't commit the crime. 
But if the judge says you are not guilty, even if you murder someone, then the police officer cannot come and put you in prison. You have been justified. And you have full access to all the benefits of a free person. But you are free not because you did not commit murder, but because the judge made a legal pronouncement on you as to the demands of the law and said you are in complete obedience to the law. You are not guilty. So the verdict of justification says the law of God sees you as having fulfilled all its demands completely and perfectly. And that there are no more claims of that law on you. The verdict of justification does not say that you are righteous in yourself. Rather, it says with respect to the eyes of the law, you have fulfilled it completely. So this is why as a Christian, you struggle with sin, and yet God sees you as completely righteous. Why? Because the righteousness that you have is an alien righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. You are still you. Nicole is still Nicole. It doesn't change until in glorification when your nature will be completely changed. So if God was satisfied by the payment that Jesus paid for you as your substitute, then of necessity, God's law cannot continue to make more claims on you with respect to your legal status. If Christ satisfied all that God required of you, then God is forced by His holiness. God is forced by His righteousness to recognize that legal reality. Oh, that's very important. God, because He is holy, He has to honor everything that He said. If God is not holy, if God is against God, then He can't honor anything. You say, oh, Robert, I'm sorry. I changed my mind on that deal. But that cannot happen with the holy God. A holy God does not change. He is immutable. He doesn't change his mind. What he has said, he has to honor that. And if someone comes and says, I have a complete and perfect payment for Nicole, and God's law recognizes that, then God has to accept that. And he is required by his own holiness to honor that transaction. So God has to pronounce you as righteous. And that is justification. And that's the gospel. And that is why the gospel is good news. Because God says, I have accepted you in spite of you. I have accepted you because of my son. And when I look at you, I see you as possessing 100% the righteousness of Christ. And now, how do we know that this transaction actually happened? Because we can describe it in glorious terms and yet did not happen. According to Apostle Paul, in Romans 4.25, which is our text, Christ was delivered up for our offenses. He was delivered for the payment of sins 
but he was raised because of our justification. So the resurrection of Christ is the one that is connected to the testimony of justification. That justification actually happened in fullness because Christ was raised. The resurrection of Christ was God's receipt to Jesus to say, yes, I am happy with the payment and I have accepted the payment and I am satisfied with the work that you have done. The resurrection was God's receipt to Jesus. But not only that. Faith. Faith is God's receipt to you to say you were accepted in Christ. So we have two receipts here. The resurrection of Christ is the receipt from God to say you have completely fulfilled the demands of what I asked of you and your people. And for your people, I am going to give them faith that they may be aware of that reality. So when you come to faith in Christ, you are not completing anything. You are only being told that it's complete. It's done. Because Christ is the one who said on the cross that it's finished. And if it's finished on the cross, then it's actually finished. You don't complete anything by your faith. Because faith is a gift of God. God has to give you to say, Nicole, I am giving you faith because you didn't know you belonged to me. And by faith, I am awakening you to the reality of who you are in Christ. All this time you were walking in ignorance, you didn't know that you belonged to me. So in Isaiah 53, 11, God says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. God shall see the labor of the soul of Christ on the cross as Christ is being punished. And God was satisfied with that. God was satisfied by the labor of Christ, not your labor. You cannot labor enough for God to look at you and say, I've seen the laboring of Robert and I'm satisfied. It's the labor of Christ that brings satisfaction to what God requires of you. So he says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So in the light of this, we can't profess Christ and then continue working. We can't continue laboring so as to be accepted by God. We have already been accepted in the beloved. We have already been accepted in the beloved. God saw the labor of Christ. God saw the agony of his son as he was taking your punishment on the cross and he was satisfied. So on the cross, what did Jesus accomplish? Jesus on the cross justified you. Jesus justified you, but not only that, he also satisfied whatever God required of you. 
Jesus justified you and he satisfied whatever God required. That's propitiation. That's propitiation. And there are many who teach that Christ went on the cross just as an example of servanthood, as an example that we have to follow. And if we can just follow what Jesus did, God will accept us. It's out there. Now, we have to explain some more theology. We have to explain some more theology. If God was satisfied with Christ, there was no reason for Christ to remain in the grave. For the grave is only for those who have not satisfied God and his law. That's a significant statement. So as long as there is a remnant of sin left in a person, the law will continue to say you must remain in the grave. As long as you don't pay that last penny on the dollar, even the cops, if you get a ticket, if you get a ticket and you don't pay them the 50 cents, they will spend five bucks to collect on 50 cents. They will send, spend $100 to collect one penny. I'm sure you've heard of that. The law requires that you send them their penny. The law requires that you send them whatever little you owe. So if there's an ounce of unpaid sin, death will continue to have its sting on you. Judgment will continue to have its sting on you. I have talked and taught about the triangle of law, sin, and death. The triangle of law, sin, and death. And this is very, very important for us to understand. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a cul-de-sac that all men find themselves trapped in with no way of escape. Okay? The law of sin and death. Here, 1 Corinthians 15.56. 1 Corinthians 15.56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting or power of death comes because the law of God says that the soul that sins must die. However, sin only comes where there's a law given to break. You cannot charge someone with sin or trespassing where there's no law against it. You can't charge me with speeding in the German autobahn because there's no speed limit there. But as soon as they put a speed sign of 100 miles per hour and I go past at 150, then I'm in serious trouble. So you can't charge someone with trespassing where there's no law against it. So what I need you to understand is you have the law, you have sin, and you have death. When you break the law, you have sinned. And when you sin, you die. It's a triangle. It's a triangle. So the law and sin 
work together to bring about death. The law came that transgressions may increase and to reveal your sin. But this is what Jesus has done. Jesus came and paid for your sins on the cross and God was satisfied by the payment that Jesus made. But not only that, Jesus also removed the very law that condemned you by fulfilling it. Colossians 2.14 says, He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. The law was against us. The law was asking us to do something that we could not do. So the law always stood against us. It stood to condemn us. But Christ has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So by his being nailed on the cross, God says, Christ was nailing the law that condemned you. And not only that, Christ also removed the sting of death. Jesus defeated death by his resurrection. So when we talk about Christ, we are saying Christ defeated the triangle. Christ defeated the triangle. Death was shamed to death by the resurrection of Christ. And the law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So our enemies, sin, law, and death were removed by Christ. And this is very important for you to know because you have a lot of preachers and people who want to talk about going back to the law. What they are not appreciating is the relationship that the law has to sin and death. If you go back to the law, you are putting yourself back into the triangle of sin, law, and death. Because the law, sin, and death are good neighbors. They are all in the neighborhood watch. They patrol day and night to see who they can suck in. Sin, law, and death are inseparable. Okay? And the only way that you are going to keep yourself invisible to the law, to keep yourself invisible to sin, and to death is to run to Christ, who alone was able to fulfill and defeat sin and death. The law, sin, and death bow at the throne of grace. And we are not under the throne of sin, law, and death, but under the throne of grace. So by raising Christ from the dead, God was saying, Christ has completely satisfied my demands for the law on your behalf, paid for your sins, and overcame death. Christ in this was also justified to be sinless because if he is a sinner, he did not pay for all your sins. I'll give you an illustration and that will be our last part of the discussion. When Sister Ella naturalized to become a U.S. citizen. It was something that was very strange, at least to me. 
Because seeing what was happening there and knowing about immigration law, knowing that as an immigrant, her biggest enemy was the Department of Homeland Security. Then, when we first came to the States, it used to be called the INS, Immigration and Naturalization Services. Now, we have to understand what the Department of Homeland Security is about. The Department of Homeland Security represents the immigration arm of the law of the land. And if Ella would lose her legal status, then she was in trouble. So the Department of Homeland Security was and is a terror if one ever loses their legal status. We lived in fear of the immigration law. We lived in fear of the INS. And I remember my friend telling me that when I first came to the States and said, there are two departments of government that you need to stay away from. The IRS and the INS. Don't mess with them. You'll get in trouble. But the interesting thing is that after having maintained a legal status and being a permanent resident, she applied for U.S. citizenship. And this is the part that I want you to understand because it gives out a very poignant illustration of what Christ has done for us. There won't be one-to-one parallels in everything, but I'll just give you the more relevant parts. On the day of naturalization, guess who was Ella's representative before the U.S. judge to petition on her behalf? It was her former four an enemy. It was a representative from the Department of Homeland Security. This was the man who was appointed to represent her and to petition the U.S. government on her behalf so that she may be given full citizenship rights. And amazingly, it was the Department of Homeland Security that prepared a defense packet on behalf of Ella to the U.S. government to petition and to tell them that she had been in compliance with U.S. law. And in this, she did not even say a single word to the U.S. judge. Ella never said a single word to the U.S. judge in trying to defend herself or to persuade her to grant her citizenship. Whatever needed to be said and recognized by the law of the land was said by the representative of the land from which she sought citizenship. So the Homeland Security Officer stood up before the U.S. judge as a mediator between the U.S. government and Ella and said he recommended that she should be given full citizenship rights in accordance with the law because she had met all the requirements. And this conversation was not between a lawyer from Zimbabwe and the U.S. judge. It can only be by the one that the law of the land has appointed to be the mediator. So if I were to go to Mexico 
and bring my own lawyer, the U.S. judge does not listen to that lawyer because the law of the land does not recognize his authority. So Christ has been appointed as your mediator of the law of heaven because it's only him that God listens to. We acknowledge this even in our own lives, but we won't acknowledge it with respect to God. So the two entities that were involved in this transaction were entities that were both recognized and understood the demands of the law of the land. So even though Ella met her own legal requirements with respect to U.S. immigration law, when it comes to heaven, it is Jesus, the legal resident and citizen of heaven, who met those legal requirements on her behalf. And not only that, he also is our mediator and advocate. Jesus is our mediator and advocate between us and God. And it is Jesus who entered into God's court as our advocate to say that by him and through him, we had met all the requirements to be granted full citizenship to heaven. So just as the U.S. judge accepted the application without any fighting, this is one of the best times that you can be in front of a U.S. judge and someone from the Department of Homeland Security. They accepted us and they were even open to hugging. You don't hug a Homeland Security officer because they will deport you. You don't hug a U.S. judge. But in this ceremony, because they were looking at her as one of their own, she had been fully accepted by them to be one of their own. And that's what Christ has done. And God the Father as the judge has fully accepted us. He has seen based on what Christ has done, based on the justification that Christ has given us and the satisfaction that the Father has because of Christ. He has said, now I have given you the right to be called the children of God because of Christ. And this Christ accomplished on the cross. This Christ accomplished on the cross. He accomplished our legal right to be called the children of God. So on the cross, Jesus honored the holiness of God. He honored the righteousness and justice of God on behalf of his people. That is those that the Father gave to him. On the cross, Jesus accomplished our acceptance by God. Jesus did not make us acceptable. Jesus did not just make us acceptable. He did not put us on a potential path to heavenly citizenship. No, he made us completely accepted by God. He granted heavenly citizenship before we even believed 
because the granting of heavenly citizenship is contingent on Jesus meeting the requirements on your behalf. So believing in Christ is only for those whose citizenship has already been settled in Christ Jesus. It's actually the opposite of how the gospel is taught. It's actually the opposite. But when you read this Bible, it will teach you that you belong to Christ even before you knew it. Because the Bible says you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And your name was written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. So it's only you who is coming in time in your foolishness and not knowing what's going on. But in time, God comes and says, guess what? You are not who you think you are. You belong to me. You are one of my own. You belong to my son. My son died for you. So we are already accepted in Christ. And the resurrection is the sure and only sign of our acceptance. The resurrection says payment, complete payment was done. Complete justification. Complete acceptance. Complete satisfaction with Christ and us. I said this statement earlier. You have to understand this. Because a lot of people, when they struggle with sin, they begin to question their Christianity. You had the transaction. You had how the righteousness is given you. It's a forensic righteousness. It's not a, an intrinsic righteousness. It's a righteousness that is on paper. You have to walk with a certificate to say, look at my paper. I am righteous. You can't say, look at me and what I'm doing. I am righteous by myself. No. It's a righteousness that has been given you. It's a legal righteousness. So you as a sinner, still in this body, still with this mind, you are going to struggle with sin because the righteousness is not in you, but it has been given you. Okay? So Jesus achieved complete payment. Jesus achieved complete justification. Jesus did not use a visa or MasterCard or American Express card to pay for our sins. Jesus did not use a credit card. Jesus made a complete payment and there's no one who is asking Jesus to pay him back because Jesus still has something that he hasn't paid. No, Jesus does not owe anybody anything. Christ paid it all. Christ paid it all and that is why he said it is finished. So how does this lead to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? The ordinance of the Lord's Supper was given in the context of sacrifice. It was given in the context of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? Given for you. It's given in the context of Christ going on the cross to be your substitute, to be your justification, to be your payment for sin. And when we come and we partake in this ordinance, we are acknowledging that our full acceptance by God 
only rest in Christ and Christ alone, in Christ and what Christ alone has done. And the ordinance is for those who have sought refuge in Christ. See, this is the danger of baptizing kids. We have no knowledge of what this is about. You can't just try to make your kids Christians. They have to come to the knowledge and faith in Christ by themselves. Because these ordinances, as we learn from the book of Corinthians, people were dying. God was killing people over this stuff. Not discerning the body of Christ, not understanding what the work of Christ was about. So the Lord's Supper is open to those who have run to Christ, who have put their faith in Christ, who have come to Christ as their only refuge. The refugees. We are refugees in Christ. Eel, fly-infested refugees. You've seen them? That's who you are. When Christ looks at you, he looks, you, looks at you not as Miss Ward or Mr. Olympia. He sees you as one who is fly-infested as a refugee. That he comes and he feeds, he cleans up, and he presents you before God. So as we have and commemorate the Lord's table, let's be reminded of the work of Christ. It's actually a completed work to say that Jesus Christ made salvation possible is not to honor Christ, is to dishonor him. Okay? Praise the Lord.